that's a big commitment we have to our, our community is to prov- be a not only like provide jobs but be a good place to work you know we want we want people to come back we want you know we want people to want to be here and so we work really hard to to do to offer what we can and to keep money in our community i mean we send our kids to public schools. We we see the value of all of those taxpayer dollars. And I agree with you. I hope people see the value of their tax dollars in our farm. Welcome to the 263rd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Since graduating from LSP's Farm Beginnings course and starting their own farm over a decade ago, Anna Racer and Pete Scold have built up a 130-share CSA that also markets produce to local schools and restaurants. They had one full-time employee in 2014. In 2021, they had close to four full-time equivalent workers. In short, a lot has changed on Waxwing Farm in a relatively short amount of time. In fact, I interviewed Racer and Scold in 2012, shortly after they bought this 40-acre parcel, which is located near Webster, just south of Minnesota's Twin Cities. At the time, the farm consisted of a house and a hoop structure heated with a wood-burning stove. When I recently returned to the farm, I barely recognized it as a result of all the new infrastructure that's been added. Waxwing's progress has come about through grit and hard work on the part of the couple. But Racer and Scold are the first to admit that another key ingredient has been government programs that help jumpstart infrastructure building. They've used USDA Environmental Quality Incentives Program money to erect high tunnels, Minnesota Department of Agriculture AgriFunds for packing facilities, and a USDA Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education grant to establish a Radicchio and Belgium Endive growing operation which allows them to market to restaurants during the winter. Racer pointed out that there are indirect ways public resources can help support more local, resilient farms as well. For example, recent Minnesota state legislative funding to create smoother connections between farms and schools has helped break down barriers that kept those two parties from doing business in the past. It's important to note that the kind of government support Racer and Scold have benefited from is not a long-term subsidy in the way that price supports or even subsidized crop insurance premiums can be. Rather, it's a short-term push down the road towards self-reliance and resiliency. Such help is a spark plug, rather than a tank of gas that constantly needs refilling. And Waxwing's stable infrastructure makes it possible for Racer and Skull to spend more locally on Main Street and to employ more people for a longer period of time during the year, in a way closing the public expenditure loop by putting money back in the state coffers via the payroll tax. The irony is that many state and federal cost share and grant programs are vastly underutilized by small and medium-sized farmers. These farmers are often either unaware of such programs or are overwhelmed by the paperwork. Racer and Skull say that's too bad because such programs can play a significant role in jump-starting regenerative farming operations that are good for the community and the land. I recently talked to the farmers about how they've used these public investments to build up their operations infrastructure and how, in the big picture, this has benefited the wider community. It's really pretty amazing. I was here, I think, about 10 years ago when you were first get, were getting started here, and I think you, li- you had the house that you live in now and a very small hoop house, just a, like a homemade hoop house with a little wood-burning stove in it, I remember. 
it's pretty amazing now to come here. When I pulled in, I thought I was at the wrong farm because you have <laughs> two big hoop houses, a really nice packing shed, kind of multi-use facility. You've got some hog facilities because you do pastured hogs, not this year, but in normal year, other years you have. That didn't kind of happen by magic. Can you talk about the different programs that you've used to kind of get some of this infrastructure set up? It sounds like it's been, and it's come at some key times for you a little bit. Yeah, so um, we built our first hoop house structure in 2013. We got an equip grant, and since it was our first one that we built, we were covered for $10,000, and that paid for the whole, pretty much the whole structure. I think we had to pay a little extra for lumber, but it covered the whole, um, all of the trusses and the steel and the plastic. Um, so that was our first one. And we immediately saw the success of that. Knew we wanted to build another one. Um, and I'm pretty sure we built our second one in 2016. Um, and again, we were eligible for another EQIP grant. And this time the funding had gone down. But Nolts Produce Supplies started selling a $6,000 kit for recipients of this EQIP grant. Huh. So we purchased the tunnel from them and again had to put a little extra money into it with lumber but you know again those two tunnels have helped us to extend our season and you know pave the way so we could build other buildings on our farm um, we built the pack shed which is a pole barn structure in 2017 and that was um for so many reasons. Number one, just being getting us out of packing things outside, but allowed us to build a 12 by 17 walk-in cooler and an additional six by eight walk-in cooler. Um, everything's on concrete and wheels and we are just more efficient. We've, so I mean, in one year though, from go, you know using it, we realized, oh wow, we can double our business because we are so much more efficient. Mm. Um, we have more storage capacity. We can heat a building so that we're storing food and it's not freezing and all these things. Um, and so our, the last building we built is a machine shed and a shop. And that one we finished in 2020. That one's purely functional. You know, ha finally have a place to park um, a tractor and all of our implements and a space that we can work on maintenance in the winter, you know, that kind of thing. Pete used to do all our tractor maintenance in the grass, and now we have a spot to pull tractors in. So, yeah, we've just kind of, but we've done it, we've tried to do one not you know one a year mm -hmm. we've kind of reserved that capital investment for about one a year like we were saying the the two hoop houses and the pack shed have both uh, benefited from grant funds um, the pack shed was funded 25 percent of the total cost of the project based on a, a grant from the agri program through MDA mm -hmm. um, and so that was the value-added grant and it's available for pretty much anything post-harvest that adds value to agricultural products in Minnesota mm -hmm. so um, in our case because we're vegetables it's anything that has to do with the washing storage and packaging of the vegetables that we grow so um, at the time that we applied for it we were able to um, get reimbursed for a portion of the building costs in addition to the actual infrastructure inside the building so the coolers, the sinks, the harvest totes, um, all of that, tables, 
pallet racking. Um, my understanding is now they no longer fund the actual building mm-hmm. anymore, which is unfortunate because I think that that extra 25% allowed us to um, take that leap and build it a little bit bigger than we actually really needed it at the point when we built it. Yeah. And now, you know, however many years later, four years later, we've fully grown into it and um, it's not too small yet, but we're not trying to grow any more than we are. And so we've been able to grow into it. It's not only getting, for example, the uh, hoop houses put in and the high tunnels, uh, and, and that isn't, is not only just helping you uh, increase your productivity, but it sounds like it's become a little bit of a necessity with climate change, too. I mean, I think on, you know, face value, those hoop houses, high tunnels are, you know, a wonderful season extension tool that allows us to grow particularly profitable crops in in a more intensive way and be able to harvest them either earlier in the season or later in the season, which ultimately makes our farm business more um, more profitable across the whole year. But like you were mentioning with um, climate change, as we're dealing with particularly in most years, uh, increased wetness in the climate, both uh, in terms of heavy rainfall and just increased humidity. Um, in the field, we see a lot of issues with disease related to that increased moisture, in addition to the limitations that obviously having wetter fields for longer periods of time in the spring and even throughout the summer, putting a limitation on our ability to do field work when we need to. So having the protected space where we can plant things, harvest things, weed things, um, whenever we need or want to is, is a real, really significant benefit. And also we're able to, in the protected culture, we're able to, um, you know, control disease Mm -hmm. and pests much easier than out in the field. Right. It makes you want to cover your whole farm. (laughs) No, we joke about that. But once you get a taste for it and start to really like build in how to maximize it throughout the year, I mean, you just kind of, you start to wonder what would it, what, how much could you really do? You know, how many would you have to put in? And we've seen a lot of vegetable farms, you know, many farmers we know moving more towards putting up longer you know these are 30 by 96 people are putting in 144 foot you know you know much bigger tunnels because you just have so much more flexibility yeah and that's a big deal well and speaking of weather and that one of the things you've also been able to do is you're truly extending your season because you're doing now more winter type talk a little bit about that it sounds like it's kind of a recent enterprise where you're talking doing more winter csa type system yeah a couple of years ago well we've we've often offered a fall share that goes into november and a few years ago we realized that it would be our restaurants were wanting to um buy things from us into December. So we were trying to figure out how to grow enough for them and our CSA and make it worth our while to go and deliver, you know, and sometimes in terrible weather, you know, it's not always um, the best time of year for that, but um, extend our season so that we, quite frankly, are just able to make money later into the year. And so we um, worked with a professor at Carleton who has a sustainable agriculture class he brings um, his class out every other year to our farm and so they came out 
2019, and they were all tasked with helping us research for a project. So we had the idea of them researching what it would take for um, us to grow uh, forcing radicchio and Belgian endive in Minnesota. So they did all this research for us, and then Pete turned it into a SARE grant, and we were fully funded. So last year was our first year of the grant, and we, I mean, you grow it in the field. Um, it's grown like any other kind of green, but then you dig it up with an undercutter bar and you store the roots. So the Belgian endive, you have to cure them and store them, and then you replant them mm -hmm. into darkness, into a, like I was saying, into our small walk-in, and it produces in the dark a beautiful head of greens. So this... So I'll back up one more step and say that this idea came from our restaurant partners who, um, you know, have known about this and buy this product and kind of threw it out there to us in a chef meeting one year and we took the bait. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, we like to challenge ourselves and learn new things and it's been really fun to explore. And then we also do forcing radicchio and it's the mm -hmm. same thing. A little bit different environment, but still the same idea of forcing in the darkness this new growth that, you know, is stored up from the sugars and the roots. And, and so then we're, we're mainly moving those two um, through our restaurant accounts. That's, uh -huh. It's not going to our CSA, but it, it really helps to just kind of have a higher value, <laughs> higher value product to, to make those winter sales worth it, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So like Anna was saying, the SARE grant funded the, the initial, um, kind of foray into it. So it, it allowed us to take the, take on growing a new crop that is a new thing that has different parameters and requirements than we're used to. Mm -hmm. And it kind of took the ed the edge off and took away the risk of trying something new with the idea of making our farm more sustainable uh, by expanding our growing season deeper into the winter and um, diversifying our crop mix and all of those things. And so we're, we're confident that it's, we're going to make it work because our restaurant partners are eager to purchase this product. And so after this year, we're already now using what we've learned from the project that's funded by SARE. We are then going to turn around and, and use that experience as a foundation for applying for a second or additional um, agri-grant mm. to um, build a larger walk-in cooler that we can use as a forcing chamber in the winter. So the idea is that, you know, that value-added grant, again, it being about post-harvest, so this is a specialty product for sure, but it's it's something that is, you know, really going to make our farm more prof profitable. So the, the Sarah grant kind of allowed for like a proof of concept, and then we can come to the MDA and say, hey, we've already started this and we see the potential of it, so we want to take that next step, but... Um, you know, it's it's a big chunk of change to um, make that kind of an investment in our infrastructure, and so having that um, program to defray that cost certainly makes it that much more approachable. Yeah, it kind of primes the pump. Exactly right. right. Yeah. 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 You know, one thing I thought of because we had talked a little bit about farm to school. And that's not something you can, you know, farmers, when they think of these programs, they think of Equip and the, the direct cost share programs. But Farm to School is another example, I think, of an investment mm -hmm. a little bit. 
it, it gets a, it, it gets at two problems. That the, the the problem of the school saying this local produce is too expensive to buy, and the farmers saying the schools aren't paying enough. So we have that we've gotten some funding, some increased funding recently. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's a, I think another public inv- it's an indirect thing, but it has those impacts. Yeah, definitely. I agree, and I have thought about that a lot in how you framed it. You know, it's farmers, vegetable farmers, well, all farmers really have to work hard to sell their product. You know, really, it doesn't kind of, you know, whether you're a row cropper or not, or a row cropper or a vegetable farmer, you, we all have to work hard. And and yet there are so many markets that are that feel unreachable, you know, at times. And so I think that this idea of farm to school... It opens up markets, you know, that are that are that are constant. Our kids are going to school. Public schools are an investment the state already invests in. So why wouldn't we connect those dots and fund, you know, help to invest in those schools purchasing from farmers and from their local farmers? Yes. I mean, you know, it's uh, Minnesota. I think we're lucky to live in Minnesota that. The Minnesotans care about schools, and so to me, this is just another layer of that, and another piece of it. But and it, yeah, and I think going back to what you're saying about for farmers too, having that peace of mind, you know, to bid out on a contract or to 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 know that the schools are actually counting on you to grow it, and that can go both ways. You know, that can be a little bit, you know, anxiety producing, etc. But when you start to work with school nutrition directors and you start to realize like they want to do this as much as you. I, I just, we've had so many positive responses and I've been working on it on a bigger scale, but even from our own farm working with schools, it's just been wonderful to see that people are committed and they want to support and that the kids are loving it, you know? So yeah, I think there's a lot of places to, to look for that success on that, but it is another investment and something that I hope we can keep promoting around the state. And that's a good, a good word to use as investment. I, when I think about any of these programs, whether it's something that's infrastructure on your farm or it's this farm to school, is this is not something, this is something that ideally, once the farmer puts that infrastructure in place or gets that relationship with the school, it will continue long after there aren't the funds available. Kind right. of thing. It sets in motion, that right. kind of thing a little bit. Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, for all of those, you know, grants that we've used for infrastructure grant or for infrastructure projects on our farm, you know, we're not reliant on that income from the grant per se, mm-hmm. but it just, it lowered that cost of entry um, for those big investments that have had huge impacts on the profitability of our farm. So it's a one-time infusion that allows us to take a next step or to, to get over that barrier that otherwise we couldn't just, you know, go and get a loan for the full amount mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. we didn't want to take on that amount of debt. It's not like we're being propped up actively by these these programs. It's it's something that um, you know certainly is is giving us an advantage, but um, that we are able to then utilize and incorporate fully into a, a fully functional farm. Mm-hmm. It is a really good investment of tax money in that we are seeing that trickle down effect in the community. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about things like you have, I think, four full-time equivalent employees. Um, this lets you maybe hire more people, maybe keep people employed longer mm-hmm. over the winter, um, um, pay, pay a more of a living wage. That kind. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that, this is the, the bottom line for the taxpayer. Is this a good investment 
And we could argue, well, it's a good investment because you're, we're getting more local food in the community. But then there's these other things that maybe people don't think about that. And this is also, there's a bias against operations like yours that you're not real agriculture. Boy, this doesn't get any realer as far as I'm concerned yeah. for the economic in impacts. Yeah. Yes. We, I mean, let's see. I'm trying to remember when we hired our first full-time employee, just to give some context. 20... 14. So we had one employee, one full-time employee from, I think, 2014 through 2016. I was pregnant with our daughter in 2017, and that was the first year that we had hired, like, let's say 2.5 full-time equivalents. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of steadily grown from there. And this year we have almost four. So, I mean, and then along with that, like you said, we've also increased wages. We don't offer benefits, but um, we try to, to keep people here longer into the winter. And or this year we're trying to keep someone part-time through the winter months. And so that's a big commitment we have to our community is to be a not only like provide jobs but be a good place to work you know we want we want people to come back we want you know we want people to want to be here and so we work really hard to to do to offer what we can and to keep money in our community i mean we send our kids to public schools we we see the value of all of those taxpayer dollars and i i agree with you i hope people see the value of their tax dollars in our farm well yeah and if your main concern is the return on investment i mean if you just think about the taxpayer dollars that we've received through these grant programs and then what we are turning around and putting back into the state coffers through payroll tax Oh, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a short timeline right now based on when we've received a lot of these grants to now when our payroll has, has grown to the point where we're, we're contributing real significant dollars in the um, form of payroll tax. But over the course of, you know, the functional life of our farm, like, that's going to add up and that return on investment is going to be significant. Not to mention the increase both in just the amount of produce that we're able to put out there to our regular customers, but also, you know, we have a commitment to um, working with hunger relief organizations and making donations of food that way. And we wouldn't be able to do that if we weren't at the size that we're at because, mm -hmm. you know, we build in a certain amount of excess to our crop plan every year. You know, a lot of that is excess is earmarked for hunger relief. So, I mean, it's the, the benefits that we are getting from being at the size that we're at are significant both to ourselves, our community, the state, mm -hmm. and I think that you know again the the simply the dollar value is is very a significantly good return on investment for taxpayer dollars and goes much beyond that. As I mentioned before, many of the state and federal programs directed at small and medium-sized farmers are vastly underutilized, which leaves money on the table. Racer and Scold encourage farmers to apply for these programs and have volunteered to provide tips on navigating the paperwork and developing proposals. They can be contacted at waxwingfarm.com. For more on state and federal programs that can help support regional food systems, See the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode number 263 at landstewardshipproject.org. There, you also find a link to LSP's Farm Beginnings course. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore 
at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.